when most of us read the book of Revelation, one of our main interests, of course, is to gain an understanding of just how the second coming of Jesus is all, all going to unfold. Who wants to know that the process of, of when Jesus is going to come? Excellent. Some of you do, so some of you will find today interesting or really frustrating. Um, because chapter 20 of Revelation and how we interpret chapter 20 will have an enormous bearing on the conclusions that we come to around this whole process. Now, I reckon today, I'm in a lose-lose situation here, folks. Um, I reckon, as I explain this Revelation chapter 20, that no matter what way that I take of interpreting it, I reckon it's pretty much guaranteed that at least half the people who listen to this message whether they be sitting in the pews here today or whether they're watching the video on home or whether they're watching the video in their own churches or whether they're listening to it on a podcast, I reckon I can pretty much guarantee, no matter what I say today, that at least half the people will disagree with what I say. And that's okay. All right? So I just want you here today, it's okay for you guys to disagree with me on this. But there will also be those who are so sure of themselves and so sure of their own interpretation that if anybody ever gives a different interpretation to what they believe, then they will view that person as somebody who obviously doesn't believe the Bible because they do believe the Bible and this is what they believe. And they'll brand them as a heretic or a false teacher. Uh, that's not okay. Uh, as I've researched today's topic, it, it hasn't really been a very big surprise to me that Bible-believing Christians from all over the world come to very different conclusions as to what chapter 20 and the millennium is talking about. Well-known theologians, highly respected Bible teachers, godly people from all over the world disagree on this. And you might find yourself asking the question, well, what hope have we got? Why are we even bothering looking at this? Well, I think the hope is we've got something we can learn from each of these interpretations. God can speak to us through each of these interpretations and, and he's told us that we'll be blessed by reading this book of Revelation. Therefore, we'll be blessed by reading chapter 20, um, even though we might disagree on exactly what it means. But as I've researched this at times, I, I've felt a really deep sadness as I've seen the way that different Christians respond to one another in all of this, when I've seen the character assassination and, and the venom that some people spew out towards other Christians um, simply because they reckon they've got all the answers and this other person sees it differently to them. So I want to begin today by saying that it's really for, important for us to understand that Revelation chapter 20 and our understanding of the millennium is not an issue on which our faith stands or falls. There have been lots of divisions in churches over this one particular thing. Um, and that's nothing that a church should ever divide on. There are some things in the Christian faith that it's okay to disagree on. And this is one of them. There are some things that are not negotiables, like who the person of Jesus Christ is, the, the Trinitarian nature of God, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the, the, the fallen sinful state of humanity and our need of our Saviour, our inability to be able to save ourselves, um, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, his death and resurrection and his ascension, 
The belief that Jesus is returning again and that the disciples of Jesus will be raised bodily from the dead, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth and that we'll spend an eternity in glory with Christ, these things are a given. These things are agreed upon. These things are not negotiables. But somewhere in amongst all of that, there is this thing called a millennium, which means a thousand years. And chapter 20 of Revelation is the only mention that we find of the millennium in the entire Bible. And it depends on how we interpret the book of Revelation, how we interpret the millennium. So please don't go ripping each other to shreds just because you have a different view of the millennium. Uh, and more to the point, can you give me a bit of a break? I'm just a simple country preacher um, who, with the help of God, is doing the best that he can to help the people of God to understand God's word. I know this might come as a shock to some of you, but I'm not infallible. Sometimes I'm wrong. And, of course, my kids and my wife know that very well. Um, but nor is any other Bible teacher. Nobody is infallible. And I acknowledge that on this matter, the position that I've come to and which I will be sharing with you today could be wrong. I don't think it is, but it could be. Um, and if when Jesus returns, I find that I was wrong um, and, and the sequence of events unfolded differently, how I think that what God is showing us, well, I'll be very willing to change my mind on that. Uh, and I'll change my theology mid-flight, okay? Righto. So having said that, I'm going to begin today by giving a brief overview of the three main interpretations of what this millennium is. Um, and then within each, within each of these three categories, then there is a multitude of variations of the theme. I'm not going to describe all them. We'd be here for years if we explained every possible variation of what people believe. So I'm just going to give a brief overview of the three main categories under which many variations exist. And then I'm going to share with you a little bit deeper from the scriptures on the, on the theme that I think the Lord is showing me is the right one. Now, the word millennium means a thousand years. Uh, we know this because we became very well acquainted with this word um, with the approach of the year 2000 or 2001. Which one was it? Who, who reckons the millennium changed at 2000? Who reckons it changed at 2001? Who cares? Well, I actually think it changed in 2001, but most of you think it was 2000. I'm not going to argue on that, but let's not fight. Um, but I also st started thinking, now hang on a minute. At least half the congregation weren't born at the change of the millennium, and, and some of them would have only been three or four with the change of the millennium. And so they probably didn't know what that millennium means a thousand years. But for us who went through the change in the millennium, well, we're very relieved that the planes didn't fall out of the sky and our bank accounts didn't go back to pounds, shillings and pence and life support systems didn't shut down in hospital and the Y2K bug ended up being just a great big money spinner for computer companies. But the millennium means a thousand years. And in terms of the biblical millennium, some see this as a literal 1,000 years, 
and others see it as a symbol representing a significant but undefined period of time. The three main categories of interpretation of, of Revelation chapter 20 are what's known as the post-millennial, pre-millennial and a-millennial positions. And the pre, post and a all refer to when we expect Jesus to return in relation to the millennium. All right, so the post-millennium believes that Jesus will come after the millennium. So we'll have a thousand year period, have a thousand year period and Jesus will come back. The pre-millennial period view believes that Jesus will come back before the millennium. So we'll go through history, Jesus will come back, then we'll have a thousand years and then, then um, and that thousand years there is the, is the millennium. And then the amillennial view, a means not or no, um, so you would think that amillennial means there is no millennium, but that's not exactly what it means, and we'll explain it more when we get to it. Okay, so that's the three different positions. Uh, now we're going to, I reckon we'll have the Bible reading now, and because today is probably the most complex topic that I'm ever going to have to cover in um, church... Uh, it's going to be quite a long message, and I've asked Ben if he could do the Bible reading to give you guys a break from my voice. Thanks, Ben. Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his, in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I al also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are out at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. The number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, let's begin with the post-millennials. The post-millennials believe that Jesus will come after the millennium. They believe that sometime after AD 70, and AD 70 is a significant date. If you, ever do, if you do much Bible study, and you'll discover that AD 70 is a significant date. That's the date at which Rome um, obliterated Jerusalem, right? So the Jews decided they're going to stick up for themselves, and they rebelled against the Roman occupation, and Rome wouldn't put up with that, and so they just obliterated them. And that's when the temple was destroyed, and therefore the sacrificial worship of Yahweh was finished. Now, either at that point or some point later in history, post-millennials believe that the 1,000 years began, whether it be a literal 1,000 years or a long period of time. And in that period, Satan is bound. He's not able to deceive the nations any longer. And so spiritually, Christ is beginning to rule on the earth. And as the gospel is preached and peoples turn to Christ all over the world, Christ is reigning on the earth. It's seen as the golden age as the world turns to Christ and even the world's culture becomes Christianized. Post-millennialists believe that when the gospel is fully preached and all or most of the world have turned to Jesus, at the end of that millennium, Jesus will return. The dead will be raised. He will judge the living and the dead. And he'll inaugurate his new kingdom with the new heavens and the new earth. Now, most people who have a post-millennial view don't seriously believe that Jesus' return is imminent. Um, at least not in the terms of what we might think of as, as the immediate possible future. Uh, like... Jesus could come back before we get to eat the smoko down the back there. Now, that would be a mighty shame because I'm sure on Father's Day, the ladies and the kids have made some really good smoko down the back and, and that we're going to get that. It would also be a mighty shame because that would mean that I've spent the last couple of weeks agonising over writing this message and I'm not going to get to finish giving it before Jesus comes back. But I'm willing to forego that. I'm willing to forego smoko. I'm willing to forego giving this message if Jesus comes back. I'll be really excited by that. Who will be really excited if Jesus comes back? Excellent. Excellent. But you see, post-millennials, they cannot believe that Jesus is going to come back before we get to eat our smoko because the gospel hasn't yet largely Christianized the whole world. And they also expect that the Jews are going to turn their hearts to Jesus Christ in a wholesale way. Um, and, and this hasn't yet happened either. Anyway, uh, there's not many post-millennialists around these days. It did used to be quite a popular interpretation, especially during the great missionary periods of the 1700s and the 1800s, as the gospel was taken to China and the Pacific Islands and deepest, darkest Africa and South America. These missionaries were fulfilling the Great Commission. They were taking the gospel into the whole world. And as they did this, they believed that they were hastening the return of Christ because Christ couldn't come back until this millennium had happened and, and, and the kingdom had grown on earth. And we cannot downplay the magnificent transformations that were being made in individual lives and in entire cultures as the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached and the Holy Spirit did his transformational work. 
You know, these days, missionaries of the past, sometimes they get a terrible rap and, and they're accused of being the destroyers of cultures and indigenous cultures and whatnot. But we must never forget the amazing transformation that took place in just about every culture that missionaries took the message to. Uh, most of these cultures were at one time just cultures of warring tribes and, cry, and they brought the message of the peace of Christ into these. Postmillennialists believe that the millennium is the period in which the world is increasingly Christianized and then Jesus returns. The second view is what's known as the pre-millennial view and I'll spend a bit more time explaining this one uh, because at the moment this view is the most popular view uh, that we will hear getting preached on the Christian airways. Premillennialists believe that Jesus will return before the millennium. So at the end of chapter 19, which we studied last week, Jesus returns. Everybody who's against Christ is killed. The Antichrist and the false prophet are dispatched to the lake of fire. Now in chapter 20, Satan is bound. The righteous are raised, not everybody, just the, just the Christians. And then the millennium begins. And premillennialists expect that there will be a 1,000-year period where Jesus is the king of the world, reigning physically in this world, and Jesus and the resurrected Christians together will rule in this 1,000-year period. And then after the 1,000 years, Satan is released, he gathers the nations to war against Christ, but God burns them up, and then everybody else is raised. The wicked will be raised for the day of judgment. All right? So the premillennialists believe that there's going to be two resurrections. One at the start of the millennium when the righteous are raised. And then a thousand years later, they believe there will be a second resurrection when the wicked are raised and judged and dispatched to the lake of fire along with Satan. Premillennialism today has become the most popular belief even in evangelical and Pentecostal churches in the United States. Uh, in fact, in some circles, you would be thought of as being very strange. Uh, you might be branded as a liberal who doesn't believe the Bible if you believe anything other than premillennialism. Premillennialists will commonly claim that their interpretation is the only literal interpretation that anyone could ever have because they see the book of Revelation as a series of events and it's written in the order of the events so therefore the thousand year reign of Christ must come after the events of chapter 19 when all of the ungodly are judged and fed to the birds. And many very well-known and highly respected Bible teachers are premillennialists. Um, and very high-profile people, especially. The likes of Chuck Missler, uh, Charles Stanley, John Piper, Chuck Swindoll, Billy Graham. Um, now, if anybody here listens to Christian Radio, you'll know a fair few of those names. Um, and many, many more uh, are pre-millennialists. Uh, the Left Behind series of books and movies, uh, which have greatly influenced a whole generation of Christians, 
Uh, they're fiction, by the way. Uh, does anybody here have left behind books or stuff? Yep, they're very common. You'll see them advertised in the Cron catalogue. Uh, they are fiction, um, but they are all based on pre-millennialism. So, why is pre-millennialism so much more popular in the United States than what it is in the rest of the world? Um, it's not so popular here in Australia, uh, but it is becoming more and more popular as we become more and more influenced by the preaching that's coming out of North America. It seems that in Australia we're becoming just more and more Americanized. So people now are starting to call nappies diapers. What, what's the go there? I mean, we're taking on American ways, and, and we're not exempt from that in, in, the, in the church either. So why is it so popular in the U.S.? Well, it's due largely to the influence of something called dispensational theology. Has anyone ever heard of dispensationalism or dispensational theology? No? Not many of us have here. Um, it comes from a mostly brethren background. Uh, so anybody who's brethren will hold very strongly to dispensationalism. Um, but it's also had an enormous influence. It's, it's been embraced quite strongly in the United States. And the influence that dispensational theology has had on the evangelical church community has been immense. Even those who don't embrace dispensationalism in all of its entirety have become greatly influenced by some of its doctrines and some of its teachings. How does that happen? Does anyone here own a study Bible? Anybody here own a study Bible? I, I, re I reckon there's more of you. Come on, come. I've got one. Here's mine. Here's my study Bible. Put your hand up nice and high. Do you have a study Bible? Righto. So I reckon about 80% of our adult population here own a study Bible. Who finds it really useful? For those who don't know what a study Bible is, study Bible has the Bible at the top and down the bottom it's got some... Some commentary which helps you to understand what's up the top, okay? Who finds their study Bible and really useful? I do, right? So most of us do. Okay. But I hope you do understand that there is a danger with a study Bible um, with the way that we use it. The danger comes when we begin to read the commentator's notes on the bottom... And over time, we begin to give the commentator's notes just as much authority as the written word above. Right? Now, you've probably all seen it in a Bible study where you know, you've got a piece of scripture and you're finding that a little bit difficult to understand and somebody will say, look down the bottom, oh, the notes down the bottom of my Bible say this. And we go, oh, yeah, that's a really good interpretation. That, that's, yeah, that is what it means. That's good. But it's not very long until somebody starts... We're talking about a passage and, and it'll change from the notes down the bottom say to my Bible says this. And we start giving the notes down the bottom just as much authority as the notes up the top. Now, my study Bible is an NIV study Bible. Who else, who else here has an NIV study Bible? Come on, hands up nice and high. Righto, about half the adult congregation. Righto. Who here has a Schofield reference Bible? No one? Uh, what about a Ryrie study Bible? No one. Of course you don't, because you're not from North America. Um, in 1909, what was probably the world's first study Bible, called the Schofield Reference Bible, was published. 
And for the first time, ordinary old Joe Blow, who hadn't done much Bible study, could all of a sudden understand even very complex and unclear bits of scripture. Why? Because the notes down the bottom told him exactly what it meant. Sam Storms says, one cannot underestimate the influence of the Schofield Bible on the rank and file of average Christians throughout the country. He's talking about the United States. With the aid of the famous Schofield notes, the Bible suddenly became accessible to the average, moderately educated Christian citizen. It became difficult for many to differentiate between the inspired text of scripture and the interpretative notes at the bottom of the page. And guess what Schofield taught in his, in his notes down the bottom? He taught dispensational theology, pre-tribulation rapture, and the pre-millennial coming of Christ. And the influence on, on a whole nation, at least the southern parts of the nation mainly, was enormous. And now that influence of premillennialism goes even beyond dispensational theology. Not, not all premillennialists are dispensationalists, but all dispensationalists are premillennialists. Now, I'm not going to explain dispensational theology in depth. If anybody wants to ask me later, I'll tell you what I know about it. Uh, I think that's probably more than most of us want to know at this stage. But because we now live in an age of celebrity preachers and with the technology of radio and television and the internet, preaching from the United States is being picked up over here now and all over the world, and most of these big-name preachers are teaching premillennialism. So I want you to understand that is the view that you'll hear coming mainly over Christian radio and Christian television. Now, I'm going to put on my cards on the table and I don't think this will surprise you, that I'm not convinced by the premillennial position. To me, as I read it, that there's just too many gaping holes that I reckon biblically it just doesn't stack up. Firstly, nowhere else in the New Testament are we given any hint that Jesus is going to come back twice or that there's going to be two separate resurrections or that we're going to get a second opportunity to repent. Everywhere else in the New Testament, it teaches us that when Jesus returns, that's it. Everything happens at that point in time. Jesus returns, the dead will be raised, the righteous come to life, the wicked are judged. There will be no second chances. Secondly, and this is a really big hole for them, is in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 and 8, uh, we're told that at the end of the millennium, the nations come out to battle against Christ. And the number of these people who are against Christ are described as being like the sand of the sea. Right? So there's lots of them. And yet, back in chapter 19, everyone but the Christians have already been killed and fed to the birds. So where does this innumerable multitude come from who are going to war against Christ? And so to me, the premillennial view just doesn't seem to stack up biblically, which brings us to the third position. The third method of interpretation is the amillennial view. A meaning no. And it's an unfortunate term that's been given to it uh, because it actually doesn't, no millennium doesn't actually describe what amillennialists believe. Um, another term that's been, a, and a better term that 
gets given to it is something called realised millennialism. A millennial or realised millennial is a view which has traditionally been held by Lutherans, Roman Catholics, Anglicans, Methodists, uh, Reformed churches, that's like Presbyterian churches, uh, churches of Christ. Traditionally, it has been the predominant view but as I was talking before, the weight is now shifting to the pre-millennial view. The realised millennium view or a millennium view sees it like this. We're living in the millennium now, right? There, yes, there is a millennium, but it's happening right now. We are in this period. It's not a literal 1,000 years. It represents a significant but undefined period of time. Now, as we've already discovered, the book of Revelation is what's known as apocalyptic literature. It, it gives us, it's a series of visions which gives us a message through images. And we've also noticed that as we read this book of Revelation, some of the events get described several times in different ways. And I've given this analogy so many times that my boys with big grins on their face, and, and Lawrence knows what I'm about to say, they, they actually start quoting me almost word for word. Um, so I should get one of them up here today to say it, but I'll do it to save time. I've stolen Philip Jensen's analogy of the instant replay that we have with our sporting events. In footy, somebody makes a spectacular try we don't only see it once on TV, they show it four, five, six times from different angles shot with different cameras. Each time we're seeing something different, but it's recording the one event. And that's what we have in the book of Revelation. Is anyone sick of that analogy yet? I keep saying it because I reckon it's a good one. And who knows, we might have somebody here and that's the first time they've heard it. If so, you need to come to church more often. Um, so... For example, in Revelation chapter 14, Babylon has fallen. And yet in Revelation chapter 16, Babylon is still there and Babylon is being judged. And then in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 and 19, we see the fall of Babylon again. It's an instant replay. They show it a few times. In Revelation chapter 6, the sun becomes black as sackcloth and the stars fall from the sky but in Revelation chapter 8, the sun's still there and the sun is darkened again. In Revelation chapter 9, the sun is darkened yet again. And yet in chapter 16, the sun is still there. We're seeing instant replays, several visions describing the one event. The book of Revelation is written down in the order that John saw the visions. Uh, you may have noticed that right at the beginning of chapter 20, it began with the words, then I saw, right? It's not this thing happened next. He says, then I saw. It's the sequence of his visions. And so chapter 20 is an instant replay. It's another picture of the arrival of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the final battle and the final judgment. It's the same event that we saw in chapter 19 as Jesus returned for his bride. It's the same event in chapter 19 as Jesus defeated those who stood against him, including Antichrist and his false prophet. And when all those who stood against Christ became tucker for the birds. 
It's the same event that we caught glimpses of with the breaking of the seventh seal way back in chapter 8. Trumpets 5, 6 and 7 in chapter 9 and the bowls of God's wrath in chapters 15 and 16 are all different pictures of this one event. So, where does the millennium fit in? The millennium is now. In chapter 19, we've caught a glimpse of the return of Jesus. He's returning for his bride. The church, in all of its purity and holiness, is presented to Jesus Christ as his bride. But what of the martyrs? They're dead. They've been killed. They've been faithful to Jesus, but they've had their heads cut off. They've been burned. What of them? Are they going to miss out when the bride is presented to Christ? What becomes of these? Well, chapter 20 reveals to us that Satan hasn't been able to cut them out of the equation. In fact, they're already with Christ. They're already ruling. You see, it might seem that Satan is gaining the upper hand. Earlier this month, an Egyptian soldier by the name of Joseph Reader Helmy was beaten to death by officers of his own army because he was a Christian. In July, seven Christian men were killed by Al-Shabaab militants in Kenya simply because they were Christians. In Iraq and Syria, ISIS have been giving Christians the choice, convert to Islam or we cut off your heads and the heads of your family. What of these? It might seem that Satan is getting the upper hand, but no, Satan does not have the upper hand. Satan's power is limited. This is what we're learning in chapter 20. Satan is bound. He is bound today. He, he may be able to kill Christians, but what happens to them when they die? Well, what did John see in the Revelation? He saw the souls of the martyrs. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for the millennium. This is the first resurrection. Those who are killed for being witnesses for Jesus are raised to life with Christ immediately. They don't have to wait for Jesus' return. This is the honour of being a martyr. You are raised to life immediately to be with Christ in the heavenly realms. Satan cannot defeat a Christian by killing them. They go straight to glory. Earlier on, we caught an image of this same thing. In chapter 6, those who had been slain for being witnesses for Jesus were there in heaven under the protection of the altar. We are living in the millennium now. Jesus is ruling from heaven now. When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, his spiritual reign began. And in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, we caught an image of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, ruling from heaven. Right now, Satan is bound. His power is limited. 
But you might say to me, no, Michael, that's not true. We suffer the attacks of the devil all the time. Well, yes, we do. For Satan to be bound doesn't mean that he has no power. What it means is that his power is limited. He cannot do anything to us that God doesn't allow him to do. God sets boundaries to what Satan can do. God is restraining evil in the world even today. You know, I hear the argument sometimes, oh, how, how can God be real? Look at all the evil in the world. Well, you wait until God stops restraining that evil and see what the world's like then. And that's going to happen. To get an idea of what it means for Satan to be bound, all we have to do is see what's going to happen when he's released. And when he is released, when God allows Satan to be released, Satan will use his power to gather all of the nations of the world to the ends of the earth. That's what the Gog and Magog represent. Right? There's lots of discussion. Who, who, who is this Gog and Magog? Well, we really don't know. But it's a symbol of the nations to the ends of the earth. And the nations to the ends of the earth will turn against Christ and against Christians to openly attempt to annihilate Christians on a world scale. Now, we see little glimpses of this in countries already, in various countries at least over time. But when Satan is loose to do his worst, he's going to convince the nations all over the world to target Christians. Christians will become public enemy number one. Jesus told us that the whole world will hate you because of me. This is what he's talking about. This is the great tribulation. Do you remember back in chapter 12, we caught an image of what's happening in heaven. And we're given this image of this dragon up in heaven. Right Now there's no prizes for working out who the dragon represents, the devil. But then Satan was thrown down to the earth. And what did he do when he was thrown down to the earth? He took his wrath out on the church. He took his wrath out on Christians. That's what Satan's going to do when his bonds are released. So for now, Satan is bound. His power is limited. Why? God is restraining evil to give every opportunity for the gospel to be preached. Remember last week we talked about how God sends out his invitations? His invitation for sinners to respond for the good news. He just keeps inviting and inviting and inviting. Well, God is restraining the devil to give the gospel every opportunity to be preached throughout the world. When God removes that restraint, all of a sudden, things are going to get really bad. And this will be the beginning of the final end. The nations will rise against Christ and against his church. God will destroy his enemies. The devil will be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, at this point, I just want to share something with you that... Um, was important for me. When I was comparing all of these different views, um, the post-millennial, the pre-millennial, and the amillennial, 
The only biblical barrier that I had for the amillennial view, I had lots of biblical barriers for the other two views, but the only biblical barrier that I had for the amillennial view was Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, where it said, and the devil who had, because back in chapter 19, um, the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet had already been thrown into the lake of fire, right? Chat, verse 10 then says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. Right? And it seemed to me this didn't line up with my understanding that chapters 19 and chapter 20 are describing the one event. Because it makes it sound like the beast and the false prophet have already been sent there in one event, and now Satan gets get sent there to join them in another event. But as I studied it more and wrestled with the scriptures, I realized that in the Greek, it doesn't say that at all. In the Greek, it says, Hi ho diabolos ho planon. Yeah, you don't care about that. Um, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet What's missing? Is there any difference between those two? What's missing? The word were. One word. To make our English translations flow, they've inserted the word were, which isn't in the Greek. John never wrote it. That's not what he saw. They could have just as easily have inserted the words will be or together with. And the New International Greek Testament commentary says this. The devil is cast into the fire together with or immediately after his two fiendish allies. When you go back to the Greek, it's the one event. So that mightn't mean anything to you, but for me, it was pretty important to me to, to discover that. It removed the one biblical barrier that I could see to the amillennial view. Um, but having said that, remember how I started this? It's not an issue of faith. If you find one of the other views, the pre-millennial or post-millennial view, more convincing, that's fine. I'm not going to argue with you about it. Um, okay. So, righto. I, I've gone on plenty long enough, and I've decided we'll cover verses 11 and 15 next time we meet. Um, actually, it won't be next time we meet, because next time... We've got this um, postal ballot coming up, and I think we need to address those issues, so we might do that next week. But let's recap. What do we learn from what we've covered today? Well, firstly, Jesus Christ is indeed Lord. He is the ruler. He is the boss. He is the king. Satan may seem powerful, but he, Satan only has the power that God allows him. Secondly, Satan is bound. In Christ, we have the power and the authority to overcome any deceitful scheme that the devil tries to throw at us. I'm reminded of when Jesus said to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's the authority that Christ has given his followers. If we act as if Satan is a real threat to us and that the devil is a crippling power over us, then that's exactly what he'll be. But if in faith 
we not only believe that Satan is bound, but we actually begin to step out in the confidence that he has no power over us because God is so much more powerful and that the only power Satan has over us is that which God allows him, then Satan will be bound. As we take the love and the forgiveness and the loving mercy of God out into the world, as we take the good news of Jesus to the world that really needs to hear the good news of Jesus, Satan is being bound all the tighter and the gospel is being released. Thirdly, we can have every confidence that by standing firm to the end, as disciples of Jesus Christ, always being witnesses to Jesus, no man, no devil, no sword, no threat can ever separate us from Christ. Fourthly, Jesus is coming. Can I get an hallelujah here? Hallelujah! Yeah, Jesus is coming. And, his power and, his, and in his power and glory, he will defeat Satan. Once and for all. And fifthly, I believe Jesus' return can be at any moment. Yes, the scriptures give us some indications of what kinds of tribulations are going to unfold before Jesus returns. Those sorts of tribulations are happening already in parts of the world. I don't know how much of the world will be under those tribulations before Jesus returns. But we need to be ready because it can be at any moment. So we'll finish off chapter 20 in a few weeks' time. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that even though we don't know your entire plan, even though sometimes we get confused by some of these images and we don't know for sure exactly what they mean, Lord, we want to thank you that we can have every confidence that of the things that we do know. We have every confidence that Jesus Christ is returning and he, and he will come back to raise the righteous and to judge the, that judge the dead. Lord, we want to thank you for your plan to come back for a pure bride and that none of us will miss out there, that those of us who have died will be raised to be presented to you on that day. Lord, we really do look forward to, the, to your coming to that very special day. Lord God, I pray that you would help us as your people to continue to love every other Christian on earth, knowing that they are not unknown to us. They are indeed our brothers and sisters in Christ and that we will be presented together with them as that holy and pure bride. And Lord God, even when we differ on, on, on our views of what this millennium might mean and what this thousand year period of the rule of Christ might, might mean. Lord, help us to just have these discussions respectfully and to love one another and to not separate ourselves from one another because of differences. And Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would help us to be a kingdom ready people. Lord, may we put as much effort and even more into getting ready for the coming of Christ as what the world put into trying to get rid of this Y2K bug all those years ago. Something that didn't even exist. Lord, help us to share the message of Christ with those around us. 
Lord, help us to be your faithful disciples, standing firm in the faith, loving as you've loved, extending your love and mercy to those around us as you did, living as a people of righteousness. And Lord, may we be found worthy on that day. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus Christ, bring your kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs>